Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Today's episode is sponsored by my Lit Daily Online Yoga Classes. This is an exclusive pass into my personal practice and program that I created from experience as a physical therapist and 20 years developing my Lit Yoga methodology. There is a different class with me every day, including special monthly live streams, so you can feel your most lit up anytime and anywhere. Get a three-day free trial today by going to movementbylara.com and clicking daily classes. Let's get moving. Good movement and welcome to Redefining Yoga, a lit yoga podcast, which is designed to investigate all aspects of the modern evolution of yoga from my background as a physical therapist and lover of movement. My mission is to help everyone find freedom through safer and smarter movement patterns so together we can be uplifted, benefiting all beings. Today is Wednesday Q&A. You ask the questions and I answer. So we're getting right off the bat with fidgeting to focus. Bare feet all the time as much as possible or orthotics for pronation. Happy medium. Good question. And the answer is probably happy medium for a while. If you have developed... First of all, pronation is not in itself a bad thing, just like lordosis of the lumbar spine is not a bad thing. It's when you come become increasingly or lordotic, sway back, or increasingly pronated, and the pronation is coming from weakness in the intrinsic muscles of the foot, or because the gluteal medials, the gluteal muscles are not firing well and there's a effect down the chain. So I would say barefoot is really important for developing in those intrinsic muscles. And when you develop them, that will inevitably help pronation and it will help the, the muscles be strong enough to hold your foot more neutral and adapt because there is a pronation that will happen when you weight shift and, and land on, on the foot, especially with running. But it sounds like you're asking, uh, should we do orthotics for pronation or work on barefoot? For for you, I don't know. I would have to look at it. Orthotics are a crutch and they will uh, sometimes make things worse. Like imagine bracing your back if you have low back pain. Well, you brace it. Is it going to support it? Yes. But is it supporting it from you supporting it? No. It's supporting it from kind of this false sense of support. So it in fact might make your your back even weaker, which is not addressing the problem. So get barefoot so that you can start to work on getting those intrinsic muscles stronger. If you find that barefoot is really taxing, you have to kind of alternate between being barefoot and not being barefoot. 
but develop more and more strength so that you can have more control of the foot and then look up the chain at the glute muscles and see how they're holding steady or not. Because if you kind of sink over, if you sink out to the side and the gluteus medius isn't holding you steady, or you drop into internal rotation, which just of the of the femur, which translates all the way down into excessive pronation, then you need to dress, of course, the glutes. And that's almost always the case with any kind of extra pronation is that the glute muscles are not firing in maybe sequential order or when they should or enough. So work on all of the above. Heather Sheldon, best tips for memorizing anatomy. I cannot for the life of me retain Latin words. Well, I would say you have to learn anatomy always in context so that it starts to stay with you. I I just think you say something and you say it, you know, a hundred times with a, with a visual in your mind of what it looks like, where it attaches to, or if it's a bone, what's surrounding it, what muscles come near it, that those are the ways it's in relationships that you're going to really memorize it, so to speak. I mean, think of like, uh, I think of my brothers who are always quoting Seinfeld. I mean, they know every show, they know all the quotes and they know it in relationship to the name of the show. Oh, that was the show that Kramer did, you know, had to go to the bathroom and ran through the park. And then he got back to the apartment and was like, where did the poop go? And the entire show is about kind of like what happens when you need to poop, but you don't have a toilet. And so then they have all of the quotes around it because of this overarching theme. So it's it's similar to this. You have to have an overarching theme. And in the relationship of that, you will know the muscles. So it's not just like, okay, remember and regurgitate, but have um, an idea of what they do. Maybe they tend to be overworking, underworking. Are they stabilizers? Are they movers? Um, and that, that'll help. But there's a lot of them there. You know, there's 600 some. So you're, uh, that's for the muscles alone. And then, you know, bones and nerves and all that. It, it is a lot. And that's okay. It's fun. But just know that it will take a while. And then also translate what the Latin means. And it will make even more sense. They really, really make sense when you understand the uh, the Latin translation. Miss Darak asks, would love to hear your thoughts on diaphragmatic breathing and anterior pelvic tilt and high, tight hamstring. Well, this is a very big question for, I could do an entire podcast around it and I have addressed it in some ways, but yes, the, I think the question is, is there a relationship to how full and robust your breath can be, meaning using the diaphragm to its fullest because the diaphragm is both voluntary and involuntary. Involuntary means it's going to contribute to breathing, whether we're conscious of it or not, whether we have bad posture or not, whether we're asleep or not, it's going to contribute. And then there's voluntary muscles within it, skeletal muscles that contribute in a different way that we can get stronger and help the breathing even become larger, right? So that the bigger your breath can be, you're more efficient. You don't take as many breaths per per cycle or per minute. And um, that makes you more efficient. Uh, your breaths are longer, and all of those longer, fuller, bigger, you know, fewer per per minute um, per each cycle, are is all about making you more efficient. That efficiency comes fundamentally from living, existing as much as 
time as you can in it with a neutral pelvis because neutral is optimal. Neutral is we're, we're, we're setting ourselves up for all kinds of possibilities. We're starting at the starting line. So an anterior tilted pelvis is going to take you out of that. It's going to take you a couple steps back and that affects your breathing as well as your, your motor uh, skills as well. So there is a huge correlation between how tilted your pelvis is, whether it's tilted because you do have uh, tighter hamstrings or because you're just living in that position and your your abdominals tend to also be dialed way down in terms of their activation and responsiveness when you live in anterior tilt as well. So the abdominals are do contribute to wonderful breathing um, as well. So the first thing I always try and get people to understand and then practice and then really embody is the idea of a neutral pelvis and how it will help you in every single way in every system of your body. You will retain more energy. You will feel more energized just by having better posture. All right. So X into into the beauty ask, is airplane pose possible for people who are born with the feet turned out? Yes, uh, it is. And you're, you are addressing something that is, you know, not uncommon with people, the way their, the femur bone, the thigh bone comes up and how it angles in is one effect, how it angles into the acetabulum of the pelvis, which is the socket part, how long the neck of the femur is and the position of the femoral head. All of those will have an impact on the turnout of your feet. So if you're saying you've had turned out feet, or you've seen people with turned out feet and they say they've been like this their whole lives, it could very well be the angle of those um, different uh, bony alignments. And so, yes, it's going to feel different in some ways and it might even feel easier in some ways with the foot turned out because with the foot turned out, you're actually increasing your base of support, but it might not look as, you know, yoga textbook and that's fine. It's really more about can you hold yourself with a neutral pelvis, even if the foot is turned out, indicating some hip external rotation? But that could just be the natural alignment of the femur. What I would be more interested in is what is happening on the top hip. Like if, are you rotating the pelvis? Say my right foot was down. Is that left hip higher than the right hip? Is it rotating out as well? So those people, I would really try and get them into more of a neutral pelvis and get their gluteal muscles on the standing leg to kick in and hold that position, which could be very challenging for anyone, but it could be more challenging when your foot feet are uh, turned out a little bit. So Brownie0516, what is your take on foam rolling? Do you think it makes a difference in freeing up fascia? I get asked this a lot about my take on rolling. And I would say that um, rolling is, I would always ask, what is the purpose? I, I think it's a great adjunct, meaning are you doing other things that are going to help you free up the fascia, help you mobilize your joints, help you, therefore, for mobilization of the joints, help you create more pliability of the tissues around the joints? So the pliability is kind of the willingness of those tissues to move and to release, to allow movement. And that has a lot to do with the position of the joint. Like, how, like for instance, going back to the anterior tilted pelvis, if you're living in an anterior tilted pelvis, the position of your hip is different than it would be if I was living in neutral. 
So the position of the hip is different, meaning it's going to shorten the hip flexors in front. There's going to be more of a tug on the low back, uh, shortening there as well. And, And so those two things can really, to roll them out, to roll out the low back and roll out the anterior hip, but not address the position of the pelvis and the movement at the hip joint, it's not going to do a lot. You know what I mean? It'll feel good momentarily. So it's kind of like it's adjunct in that way. So it might give you some relief and there's nothing wrong with relief, but I'm more interested in using it as a, as a continuum of good movement and good patterning of movement. Uh, I do think there are more superior roles and less superior roles, like less optimal roles. I think anything that causes you a, a pain, meaning you're wincing, catching your breath and things like that, it's too much. But I think there's great rollers out there, amazing ones. And so I would get one that has a firmness to it with some give, like it's not just totally rigid, like there's a little feeling of a, of a molding or giving to it, such that your fascia and your uh, the tissues can kind of also, it's called melting, melt into the, the roller uh, or melt around it. If the roller is too rigid, that just won't happen. You'll kind of guard yourself against the discomfort of the roll and, and then you're not doing much good at all. So I, w- I would say check out um, rollers for that. But do it as, a, as an adjunct, meaning a secondary or third line of feeling you're an optimal, um, not just the primary or, or use it as like a band-aid to bad movement, right? So I see that a lot too, where people like have really bad form running or being on the treadmill or biking. And then they're using the roller to kind of roll out the, the feeling of all that bad form. And, and it just is a, it's not a vicious cycle, but you're not, you're not resolving the underlying issue, which is really check your form out, back it up a little bit, get down to the fundamentals and the foundationals and improve your movement patterns. Last question I will take is shoulder tendonitis. Any suggestions on how to work on shoulder tendonitis? This is from Lunastar Yoga. Well, Lunastar Yoga, um, shoulder tendonitis is a very, it's kind of an umbrella term. So there's there's several tendons that could be affected. One could be the rotate one of the rotator cuff tendons, often the supraspinitis, which is you will feel when you reach your arms out to the side and lift them up, and you will the it's it's an impingy, pinchy, not comfortable feeling. It also when you try and like reach your arm behind your back in internal rotation, you might feel some of those external rotators being pulled on, like the teres minor. The bicep tendon is also another one that gets tendonitis, and that is in the front part of if you had your arms down by your side and turned your palms forward, it would be right in the front there. So it's the the long head of the biceps is is coming up and it inserts into this little groove there. And doing things where you're loading your um, or your weight bearing on your hands and then loading that over and over again in a way that isn't great, like diving into Chaturanga, for instance, you can really um, make that guy angry. (laughs) So 
when you say shoulder tendonitis, what I would say is you have to look again at the root cause of it. What is it? It's often the mechanics of the shoulder. It's the imbalance of the mechanics of the shoulder so that the the muscle, if, if somebody's having shoulder discomfort, I would examine how they're moving in the shoulder, but almost always say that it's about creating more stability for the muscles around the scapula. So all of those rotator cuff muscles, the middle trapezius, rhomboids, lower trapezius, and serratus, are gonna, and, and even upper trapezius, all of those will be targeted. So everything in the back of your body. There's really no muscles in the front. You have the anterior deltoid, but there's no muscles in the front that are going to help you when you have tendonitis. You're going to really have to help yourself from the back part. So tendonitis is usually happening on the front of the shoulder or the side of the shoulder because the muscles in back of the shoulder are not helping out enough. And then you load it by putting your hands on the floor and then lowering to the ground, like I said, from from you know a suboptimal plank, diving down into chaturanga the way it's often taught. And you are really taxing the passive structures of the shoulder, including the tendons. So the tendons are just coming around and inserting. The tendons are a, uh, a tendinous band up from the muscle. So the muscle can attach to the bone. And so they get irritated because that's, they really don't have the muscle, you know, they don't have the muscular contractile properties to, to help stabilize. That has to happen in, in the back part. So the tendons are coming around to the front and the side. So the best thing to do is, A, if you already have it or know somebody that has it, don't do anything that irritates it more. I see people who are who make the movement and they're like, oh, this hurts, this hurts, and they just do it over and over again. And I don't know if it's like they're kind of like seeing like, hey, does it still hurt? Oh, yeah, it still hurts. Or they're just thinking, I'm going to move through the pain. But you have to stop doing the movement that is bothering it. And then go and get a professional to look at your mechanics. Because anytime you have tendonitis, tendinopathy, any of these terms, you are you have done something repetitively in a suboptimal way that is creating um, inflammation and creating possible some damage to the tissue. And you want to stop and understand how to improve your movement patterns. So going to somebody who really understands this, physical therapy, physical therapist, and not all physical therapists are the same, but they will be well-versed in the shoulder mechanics. And there are some other you know, um, great professionals out there who, who understand the shoulder as well. But you need to learn how to move well in the shoulder and learn how to load the shoulder well where it is not moving, but it has to stabilize and stabilize well. So it's not putting stress on those tendons. So it's a multiple pronged approach. We can't just say, well, this is what you do when you have it. Always I look at what led up to it and how can we prevent it from happening again. And in the prevention of happening again, we are in fact helping it and healing it because we're uh, creating better movement patterns. And that is really what I'm super passionate about. I mean, this is like what really wakes me up in the morning and um, gets me so motivated is helping people move better. So move better and let's stay away from those um, ouchy waves of moving. All right. As always, it's great to have your questions. You can always write me directly at laura at movementbylara.com or wait for my Instagram stories and put it on there. I get a lot of questions and I am so appreciative for your questions. 
and I'm appreciative of you sending you lots of love, pulling for you always.